Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Manliness podcast. For most men in America, baseball cards played an integral part in their boyhood. Whether you put the cards in your bike spokes or took part in high-powered trades with your friends with the Beckett Monthly in hand, baseball cards were part of the male experience in America. And if you're like most men, you still have boxes of cards in your old bedroom. You held on to them thinking that they would you know, someday fund a purchase of a Bentley or trips to Hawaii years later. Our guest today tried to sell his old baseball card collection when his parents cleaned out his old room, but he quickly found out that his childhood investment was just worth the cardboard it was printed on. Not very much. Dave Jameson is the author of the book Mint Condition, How Baseball Cards Became an American Obsession. Dave is a freelance writer and has written for the Washington Post, Slate, the New Republic, and the Huffington Post. And he is the recipient of the Livingston Award for Young Journalist and the Sidney Hillman Foundation Sydney Award. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Dave, what inspired you to write the, about the history of baseball cards? In your book, you talk about kind of the story where you, you went to go get some baseball cards your mom found when she was cleaning out your old, her old bedroom. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, this all started when my parents were selling the house I grew up in in uh, North Jersey a few years ago. And uh, the, really, you know, my mom wanted me to clean out my closet and... Uh, I hadn't really been in there in years, and and there was an enormous box in there. I mean, the size of a small car, and it was just filled uh, with baseball cards, mostly common cards from the '80s, but also some uh, what I thought were some little prizes, uh, you know, rookie cards uh, from the '80s, like you know, Mattingly and Clemens and Puckett and and uh, Ripken. And I thought those were going to be pretty valuable at this point in time. I, I, that's why I would stowed them away as a kid. Uh, but when I started calling up the card shops, uh, I started getting disconnected numbers. And I saw that, that the cards I had, even sort of the special ones, were, were going for very little money on eBay and on Craigslist. In fact, Craigslist was littered with guys like me who were trying to unload, who were 30 years old trying to unload these cards they'd had from childhood. And that's when I, I got interested in finding out what had happened in this industry and eventually finding out sort of where these cards came from uh, over 100 years ago and uh, where they eventually went to. And this um, book started out as a magazine article. Is that, article, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I originally wrote uh, a piece for uh, Slate.com about sort of how this industry unraveled in the 1990s. 
um, and uh, and from there so expanded it into a book. So, Dave, what's the origin of the baseball card? Well, the origin, um, the sh- the short story is that cards uh, fir- first began appearing in large numbers uh, in the 1880s. This was at the time they were packaged with tobacco, and this was a really brilliant idea at the time. And it wasn't just baseball players that were on cards; it was also actresses, uh, Native Americans, uh, you know, army and and, and navy figures. And what these tobacco companies would do is take uh, print these cards, package them with cigarettes, uh, which was a new tobacco product that at the time relatively new. Tobacco uh, cigarettes, I should say, weren't you know as popular as they are today after the Civil War, and this was a marketing technique to popularize them. And so these cards were slipped into into cigarette packs, and the idea was to create some brand loyalty. Um, and to get people buying more more packs of your own brand, and, and kids would buy these. You know, the cards would be numbered one through ten or one through fifty, and uh, you'd buy more packs of these cigarettes so that you could complete the set. And it started a fad in the 1880s, where where little kids would beg their fathers to buy one brand over another, and kids themselves, this being the 1880s, would buy the packs of cigarettes themselves. <laughs> And, you know, this it, it was very controversial at the time. I mean, even though we didn't know everything we know now about smoking, people knew, put one and one together, that this was not good for you. And there was a lot of heat on these companies because they were they were really attracting kids towards cigarettes. But, um, you know, baseball cards pretty much took off immediately. And this marketing technique would be replicated over and over in, in other industries, uh, gum, candy, uh, chewing tobacco uh, to to slip baseball cards uh, into the packs. That that's how how it all began. And what I thought was interesting, I mean, um, is kind of the history, of the transition from going from tobacco to candy. Um, but how did baseball cards become an industry in itself? I mean, how did baseball cards move away from you know pushing tobacco or pushing gum to becoming industry in and of itself? It was it was kind of gradual. Um, what I thought was interesting in my research is even though this stuff, th- there were certain golden ages of baseball cards, the 1880s being the first one, I think, uh, around 1910 being another. And, uh, and again, during the Great Depression, you know, during the Depression, that's when they started being packaged with bubble gum. It was very popular at the time for a penny, you could get a stick of gum and a card. And this being the Depression, kids couldn't go to ball games, and, and cards really served as a way for them to stay connected to the sport. But during all these years, the first half of the 20th century, cards were always used uh, as um, as what, what, what marketers would call premium. Uh, in other words, you were buying this pack for the gum, but the baseball card was there to sort of sweeten the pot. And that started to change uh, around the time Tops came along in the 1950s. Uh, this was a bubblegum company, like a lot of others, but they really sort of bet their future on baseball cards, and they thought that that's where the future was. And, you know, they had they had wonderful timing. This was, uh, you know, the early 1950s, baseball's in, in the middle of a golden era. You know, you've got the, these great uh, Yankees-Dodgers rivalries going on. And Topps at that point put a huge investment into getting contracts. And really by, by 1960, uh, there was a great, a great line by, by the head of Topps at the time, um, Arthur Shore, and he said, told a newspaper reporter, the cards wagged the gum, which was his acknowledgement that they were no longer really pretending to sell bubble gum. Kids were really after the baseball cards. And that's sort of when 
when, as you said, baseball cards became an industry in their own right. And what I thought was interesting, you mentioned Topps um, as one of the big players in the baseball card industry. What I found was interesting in your, in your book is that I've always had this kind of wholesome image of baseball cards and baseball card companies, you know, kind of this all-American thing. But in your book, you describe the baseball card business as this kind of gritty and often cutthroat enterprise. Can you talk about some of the big players in the baseball card industry and what things they did, both good and bad, that in, impacted the hobby? Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. A lot of what I learned came out of a, uh, a case file now in the National Archives. It was a, a monopoly investigation started by the Federal Trade Commission in the 1950s. They were investigating tops. Um, which, you know, the idea of there being a baseball card monopoly uh, that, that, that got the government's attention and took years of resources is, is, is kind of amazing and gives you an idea of how vicious the competition was. Topps basically, uh, the contract fight was, was so rough with these other companies' names you'd know like Fleer and Bowman uh, that Topps basically developed its own scouting system. They had coaches on the payroll, coaches, managers, and professional scouts. So basically, when you got when you when you were a teenager, not only were major league ball ball teams looking at you, Tops is looking at you as well, and they wanted to sign you for as little money as possible. And you know, high schoolers and minor leaguers, when they signed, got a check for five dollars from Tops, and it was called steak money because that's about what it would get you in those days, uh, a good stake. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically they were signing as many you know, young rising stars as they could. And this went on through the 1950s and 1960s. And Topps was so aggressive uh, in signing that they were effectively able to shut everybody else out. And they had such airtight contracts that places like, like Fleer just simply couldn't manufacture cards. And that's why Topps, you know, you'd see uh, if you collected, Topps was the only brand out there really until uh, 1980 when when a a federal judge basically decided to break up Topps' monopoly and allow other companies to manufacture cards. And that's sort of what brought on the the boom of the 1980s, which if you're in your 30s now, you'll probably remember collecting Fleer and Topps and Donruss and all these different cards. And that's essentially why is that Topps' three-decade monopoly was finally broken. That's really interesting. Another part, interesting part of your book, you, you don't just talk about the big baseball card companies, but you talk about some of the biggest collectors in the history of, of baseball cards. Um, and they had some just really interesting personalities. You know, who were these men and how did they affect the hobby? Um, well, the biggest sort of the guy that's known as, as the grandfather of, uh, of card collectors is a guy named Jefferson Burdick who was a uh, a relatively poor bachelor from Syracuse who pretty much spent his uh his entire life traveling the country trying to 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 collect every card he could get his hands on and this wasn't just baseball cards it was cards of all sorts and it was tobacco cards gum cards he basically wanted all wanted every bit of it and what he was trying to do was catalog it all he was kind of creating sort of like a Dewey Decimal system for trading cards. The collection he amassed is actually at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's, it's called the Burdick Collection. And and what he did was he was the first guy to really try to get a handle on everything that was out there. And he took it all in and he gave it all. He, he, he organized it all and gave the sets different names. And, and you may have heard of, of the 1909 uh, Honus Wagner card. It's called a T206 card. And that T206 designation comes from Jefferson Burdick. So he was the guy, he sort of broke the wood is kind of how serious collectors look at him. And, and he's, 
you know, he's kind of a hero to to a lot of guys today who who, who are very serious collectors. And, and of course, there's been plenty of other uh, collectors who sort of built on what he's done. But he's he's sort of considered the grandfather. Yeah. And there was one guy in particular that I thought was really interesting. I forgot the name escapes me at the moment, but he's the one who spent enormous amounts of money buying um, sheets of baseball cards and just like the rarest thing he could find in um, the Honus Wagner card he, I think he invested in. What was his That's name? right, yeah. That would be uh, Mike Gidwitz. Okay. Yeah, Gidwitz, you know, very uh, interesting thing. A lot of these guys, it, it's a very different industry now. Basically, what's called the secondary card market is is where uh, guys with a lot of money buy and sell uh, these days. Uh, baseball cards, you don't see them in CVS a lot. There's not a lot of, of sales going on in that department. But the, the, the buying and selling of vintage high price cards, it's almost like the fine art world these days. And Mike Gidwitz is one of the guys who has a lot of money and has been throwing it around on baseball cards for, for many years. And I visited his apartment in Chicago. Uh, it's a, he has uh, a penthouse overlooking uh, Lake Michigan and another penthouse up there, which is basically just for his baseball cards. And um, he, he was the first guy to sell a baseball card for a million dollars, and that was the Honus Wagner card, which he bought at one point for about $600,000, uh, which just kind of gives you an idea of of the seriousness uh, of some of these collectors. And, you know, his his apartment really is like an incredible museum. You mentioned the uncut sheets. Those are are sheets of cards that were never cut into individual cards. And uh, they're very rare because... Uh, basically, they were never supposed to see the light of day. Uh, you know, they were they were supposed to be turned into cards. You know, they're they're very beautiful and they're very rare. And he's got them, you know, plastered all over his walls. You know, tobacco uncut sheets from the uh, from the 1800s and 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 top sheets and and gouty sheets from the 30s. And it's really kind of amazing. And and you know, it, it just sort of reinforces why so many people love these cards and pursue them and spend enormous amounts of money on them is that is that really a lot of them are are, are kind of beautiful uh, and, and they really display very nicely we're gonna take a quick break for your word from our sponsors wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day i know wedding planning can be really intimidating but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home don't just wear any suit on your big day wear a custom made to measure suit Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. And what do you think drives these, you know, super collectors who will spend any amount of money to finish their their set or get the the rare uh, baseball card? I mean, what what drives them to spend so much money on on pieces of cardboard? You pr- probably uh, there's probably some psychologists who could explain it better than me. But yeah, a lot of a lot of these guys are, are driven in the way that that other collectors, whether they're they're 
very elite collectors of vinyl records or wine or whatever, uh, it really becomes a life's pursuit for them. And, and, you know, it was interesting. I found a lot of guys carve out their own sort of niche. A lot of people are what are called type collectors. They will they will want one card from every set that's out there. Uh, a lot of people pursue certain players. A lot of people want to complete, you know, individual sets, which was always the idea of card collecting from the very beginning. And and what's fascinating about baseball cards is there are certain sets out there, like say the old Judge set from uh, the late 1880s, where where we're still discovering cards to this day. Uh, they they will turn up in attics cards that where you'll see ball players in poses that we, we simply have never seen before. And, and so sets like that, that, that's a set, for instance, where there's maybe uh, a half dozen people who are pursuing it in hopes of completing it, where that, it's, it's that extreme, and, and, and they probably never will just because we'll never be able to wrap our hands around what's out there. And I think that that's, that's on a fundamental level what draws most of these serious collectors is is kind of a, um, a search, sort of a search for the unknown. And I think a lot of them know that they will never perfect their their collections, but it's sort of the pursuit that matters to them. And, and they're very, very competitive. You know, these Honus Wagner cards, the 1909 card, there's, there's, we believe there's 50 to 100 out there. And uh, a lot of these serious collectors, they know, they know pretty much where all those cards are, and they know when one is going on the market. Uh, and it's a very, very serious world like that. So you talked a little bit about how there's this golden age in baseball cards, particularly you know starting in the 80s when the monopoly on tops broke up and other card um, manufacturers got into the game. Um, and they kind of went on uh, through the late 80s and early 90s. But then, like, 1994, kind of they start, the beginning of the unraveling. What happened? Why did the baseball card industry just go bust? And it's in the shape it is today. I, you know, I, I, a lot of people compare it to kind of a tulip craze. I, I joke that before um, tech stocks and McMansions, there were baseball cards. Because basically it was sort of a classic bubble. Throughout the 80s, these things were, these cards were appreciating in value in a way that really didn't make sense. And the hobby grew uh, to, to such huge proportions. I mean, you know, if you grew up in the 80s like I did, you'd remember even as a kid, uh, there came a time where rather than, than playing around with cards and tossing them around and, and not caring for them, you started slipping them into like hard plastic cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people were buying new cards, new product by the box full, by the case, and like putting it in their basement, just waiting for it to turn to gold. And that really, that, that obviously doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the fact that millions of people were doing it should have been, you know, kind of a warning sign. And part of the problem was that the card makers at the time were rolling out so much product and they weren't really disclosing how much they were rolling out. And so all this stuff was really never, never had the chance to be rare. You know, what made the cards in the 1950s and earlier so valuable and special is the fact that most of them never survived. They were thrown out by you or your mother, uh, and they were never really taken, you know, good care of. And so those cards became scarce. The stuff in the 80s was junk that really was never going to have the chance to become scarce. And so this all kind of came to a head uh, in the early 90s when uh, one figure I came across was that 81 billion cards were being manufactured each year. Mm. And so you had a lot of people, uh, people on every level, whether it was the card makers, the card dealers, uh, collectors, or especially the baseball, uh, the, the, the baseball players union, which was giving out a lot of licenses. 
everybody was trying to cash in on it, which was really uh, what, what turned us into such a spectacular bubble. And everything kind of started to come to a head, uh, unfortunately, around the time of the baseball strike of 1994. And that's when things started heading south. And, and since then, these card makers haven't really recovered. Uh, it, it became a hobby geared towards adults. Kids kind of ran for the exits, and they still haven't come back. And that's why cards now, if you go into a card shop, the new stuff, uh, aside from the very basic lineup that they're still you know, aiming towards kids, a lot of this stuff is kind of weird stuff. Uh, you know, if you're not into this world, you know, you, this, this Steven Strasburg card, you know, the pitcher for the Nats, uh, card sold a couple weeks ago for for twenty thousand dollars because it's a gold refractor card. I don't even know what that means, you know. <laughs> and I, I like, <laughs> I wrote the book on this stuff, yeah. so it's a very strange world like that. I mean, they have cards they call them DNA cards, where it'll be a card of Abraham Lincoln with a strand of his hair on it. I mean, just really bizarre stuff that goes for thousands of dollars, and obviously. Kids aren't into that stuff. They can't afford it, and it's they, they don't pursue pursue stuff like that. So it's become a very a hobby, very much geared towards adults, which I think is part of the problems that they're having these days. Well, speaking of that, I mean, is there any hope for a resurgence? I mean, are baseball card companies trying to do things to bring kids back into the hobby? I mean, or is baseball card collecting going to be relegated to his, you know the dustbin of history, along with you know blue laws or mail garters? Right. Well, that's the that's the tough question. I mean, they they have been. I think they recognize that the only future for this hobby is with children. You know, I, I talk to guys, older guys, um, serious collectors who would wonder to me uh, whether we were seeing kind of a twilight of card collecting, and the re- good reason for that is because um, you know most of collectors right now are adults and they're not going to be around forever. Um, and when you lose one generation of kids, it's very hard to get the next one that's coming through. What, what Topps has done lately, which is pretty smart, is they've they've simplified their product line. For one thing, Major League Baseball decided they were only going to deal with Topps. They effectively shut Upper Deck out. And I think the idea is to uh, to simplify things for children, to, to sort of... Uh, Deglut this market right now, uh, and Tops has has slashed some prices on some of their lineups. You know, you can now once again get a pack of cards for a dollar, which yeah, is wow. very reasonable, and that's what they're doing to draw kids back in. And they've also added lineups that have kind of a an online fantasy baseball element to them, where you can register your cards and compete with friends, and that's all pretty smart. But, you know, the bottom line is there's so much competing for kids' attention these days uh, between the Internet and these incredible video games. It's pretty tough to uh, to give them, you know, some cardboard and uh, expect uh, kids to play all day with it. So yeah. I think the challenges are, are pretty huge. Hmm. Well, Dave, after I read your book, um, it, it really got me, you know, nostalgic about my baseball card collection. So I went, I, when I was visiting my family over the 4th of July, July weekend, I went got my collection out and uh when i collected baseball cards there's just a few players i collected and the big guy that i collected was frank thomas and the other one was nolan ryan uh, did you have a particular player or team that you collected when you were a kid i did being from north jersey i was a big yankees fan so yankees team sets were always pretty important to me and every year i'd i'd, I'd assemble i'd assemble it several times over but my hero of the day was uh was don mattingly the the most special card for me, and, and I still have it today, is my '84 uh, Topps Mattingly rookie. And I remember riding my bike down to the card shop every so often, and and looking at it under the glass. It was about thirty bucks, 
and uh, just wondering when I'd have it. And finally, I got it for for Christmas one year, and uh, and I still have it to this day. And and it's probably I don't know. It's probably worth like twelve bucks these days. You know, none none of what we have from the '80s is worth what it was at the time. Uh, but it's really it's a lot of fun to pull it out every once in a while. And what I always tell people is, you know, guys in their 30s who I've talked to about the book, you know, they'll 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 say tell me similar stories that they went and pulled their stuff out and. You know, some people think about selling it, and I always say it's it's not even worth what you you know it's not worth selling. It, it's much much more valuable as kind of a keepsake, and uh, and it's really nice to to hang on to. And 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 every few years you pull it out, and it kind of rem- reminds you of being uh you know an eight eight or nine year old kid, and and how you spent all day trading cards with your buddies. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Brett, thanks a lot for having me. Our guest today was Dave Javinson. Dave is the author of the book Mint Condition, How Baseball Cards Became an American Obsession. And you can pick up Dave's book at Amazon.com or any other major bookseller. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly.